I thought we'd start by listening to the birds together since today's episode is Mockingbirds and the Polyvagal Nervous System. It's episode 10 of the Song Heart Connection podcast. Um, I've taken you outside with me, obviously. It's a gorgeous morning. There's going to be some ambient noise, of course, separate from the birds. But all the more charm, right? Uh, I'm thrilled to return to the podcast. It's been a couple months. Uh, with the intention of uh, creating more episodes this summer, you know, maybe even shorter in length, but just packed with goodies. As for this one, I encourage you to stick around till the end. There's a lot of juice here. So let's, let's go for it. It's spring. The windows are open, inviting that cool breeze to pass through our homes. There are gorgeous blooms for visual feasting. Warmer, sunny days are upon us. And the birds, the birds are singing, chirping, whistling, cooing. Every morning, I wake up around 6.30 to a chorus of birds outside my window. I wish they'd start singing a little later, but I do love listening to them. I love observing them too. It's an invitation for reflection and an auditory reminder to slow down. I'm watching a, uh, a morning dove build a nest right now. It's really cute. And I'm sitting next to the feeder. So there's a lot of activity. Perhaps you first heard about the mockingbird in the old lullaby, Hush Little Baby, Don't Say a Word. My parents used to sing it to me before bed when I was little, actually. The text goes on to say, Papa's gonna buy you a mockingbird. If that mockingbird don't sing, Papa's going to buy you a diamond ring. In the 19th century, people kept so many mockingbirds as caged birds that the species nearly vanished from parts of the uh, the East Coast. People took nestlings out of nests or trapped adults and sold them in major cities such as Philly and New York. In 1828, it was recorded that these birds sold for $50 a piece. That's equivalent to $1,300 now. And you guys know me. With that money, I'd much rather go to Italy. (laughs) Um, You've likely read To Kill a Mockingbird. I think it was assigned to me in high school, but I did not not read it. Anyway, we're not going to get into that book. Um, Carly Simon and James Taylor sang about the mockingbird. Eminem rapped about it. And if you ask me, Daddy's going to buy you a mockingbird. I'm going to give you the world. I'm going to buy a diamond ring for you. I'm going to sing for you. I'll do anything for you to see you smile. One of my favorite songs happens to be Mockingbird by Rustin Kelly. It's a crank the volume and roll your windows down on a road trip or play on repeat during a fast bike ride type of vibe for me. Pretty little Mockingbird, keep singing them sad, sad songs. There's already rain on my window. I'm dying when the morning comes. Flew away in the night with a raven, and now I'm underneath the willows hanging. I'm too strung out to be upside down. Pretty little mockingbird, sing your song. Mimus polyglotos. 
Garrett, the sweet boy I used to babysit, the now college grad, told me the scientific name of it once while on a <laughs> while on a walk. It's too early for this, guys. It's too early for my mouth to be tired. <laughs> um, we were on a walk in the preserve together. He said, Deez, do you know the scientific name? And I said, no, Garrett, I don't. <laughs> well, here comes the train. That's nice. So, uh, Mimus polyglottus. Let's break it down. Mimus means to mimic. Poly, as you know, means many. Glottis, glottos, glottus. Ooh, I'm wondering how loud this is going to be for you guys. That's all right. Um, so the glottis. The glottis is part of the larynx, consisting of the vocal folds and the opening between them, affecting vocal modulation through expansion and constriction. The Greek word polyglottos means multiple languages. The mockingbird is known for mimicking songs of other birds, insects, and amphibians, and often loudly and rapid in succession. They repeat dog barks, musical instruments, car alarms, and sirens too. Kind of like a less exotic parrot, I guess. <laughs> Mockingbirds are known for their remarkable singing abilities. If you've been hearing an endless string of 10 or 15 different birds singing outside your house, you might have a mockingbird nearby. Or just some loud people walking through the arroyo. <laughs> um, other than the distinctive white markings on their wings, mockingbirds are plain and gray in appearance, their true colors showing in their personalities and songs. They sing endlessly, sometimes even through the night, and they're very territorial, known for flying slowly around or prancing toward intruders. You can find them sitting high on tall shrubs, poles and utility lines, or also moving about on the ground, hopping to and fro. Take a sip of water. So another cool fact about mockingbirds is that they continue to add new songs and sounds to their repertoire throughout their lives. A male may learn around 200 songs throughout its life, and he apparently has a distinctive spring repertoire and a fall repertoire, respectively. It's like choosing your go-to karaoke song per the season and not your level of intoxication. Imagine. So the unpaired male uh, sings 24 hours a day during breeding season. That's insane to me. How do they maintain vocal health? I want to know. It's obviously not an issue. Uh, once a male has courted a mate by elaborately displaying his singing capabilities, the pair may stay in a monogamous mating relationship over many breeding seasons. A pair can raise two or three broods in a breeding season and go on monogamously to do the same the following year. I'm slightly obsessed with mate-for-life birds, and I have been for a few years now. <laughs> like the albatross and the puffin. There's something very romantic to me about those birds and their love lives. Call me crazy. That's okay. Something I love specifically about mockingbirds is that both male and female mockers take part in aggressive nest defense and share in the feeding chores. That is so very sweet. Most of the mockingbirds you hear sing at night are unmated males, and nocturnal singing is especially common during full moons. The only months they don't typically sing are December and January. 
Why would that be, do you think? Considering the shamanic belief that mockingbirds symbolize endings and beginnings, perhaps that translates to the closing and start of the calendar year. Going out on a limb on that one, guys. Get it? A limb? I thought that was clever. I'm, I'm so funny these days. Um, also in shamanic belief, the mockingbird symbolizes faith, integrity, grace, universal love, and fearlessness. It represents the inability for anyone to kill your spirit. I totally, totally dig that. So the female sings too, apparently more quietly than the male. Interesting. She rarely sings in summer and usually when the male is away from the territory. The female sings more in the fall to make way for winter. Don't the seasonal changes move us to sing as well? I understand that. Have you ever been dive-bombed by a bird for getting too close to its nest? It was likely a mockingbird. The wildest thing, they recognize us. So let me explain. Mockingbirds recognize humans who have previously threatened or disturbed their nest, preferentially attacking those people while leaving other random humans alone. Mockingbirds can recognize a human after only 60 seconds of contact. You can thank the University of Florida for that study. Go Gators! The mockingbird happens to be Florida's state bird, actually, along with Arkansas, Mississippi, Tennessee, and Texas. I have no idea why we all have to share a state bird, but I will explore that another time. Um, you might be wondering why this podcast is about the mockingbird. Um, I'm not 100% sure, but I'm kind of experimenting on the topic with you. Um... When something calls my attention, I like to investigate. So um, circling back to one of my earlier episodes about authenticity versus adaptability, this kind of ties in. I'm going to attempt to string these thoughts together. So hop on this train and hang on. little side story. Um, I recently sat next to a pleasantly drunk 22-year-old guy from Alabama at the bar while on a flight delay stuck in Dallas on a layover. He asked me about my work and if I sang, to which I replied that I used to sing opera. After a series of questions about singing opera, I insisted on explaining the mechanics of it and had him place his finger over his larynx to feel the lowering movement when he yawned. His eyes widened. He stared at me blankly and then summed it up perfectly in his charming southern drawl. So y'all just scream while yawning then? And yes, precisely, Bama, you nailed it. He goes on to say, I could do that. <laughs> um, and with the proper training, I think he very much could. And I think anyone could, really. I'm not saying everyone should necessarily, but singing is simply affect and mimicking right? Everyone has their own voice, yes, with its own personal characteristics, colors, and distinctive qualities. That's true. Um, no one would argue that there's recognizable beauty in the tone of our loved ones when they comfort us, or rigidity in the voice of a disciplinarian. But then think more lightheartedly also, like Cher and Elvis and Britney impersonators. How many of you could do Cartman's voice from South Park? Or Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh? Fran Drescher from The Nanny? 
we are human mockingbirds. Oops. We can make different sounds, different calls. And I'll take this a step further. I want to ask the question, and a bit abruptly, if I might add. Amidst all the noise and calls of our parents and peers, social media and societal pressures, how do we find our voice? What type of voice or call or song do we use when connecting to ourselves, defending our territories, or setting out to find our love and partnership? How do you know it's yours and not someone else's song? What makes it authentically yours and not a copy of something that already exists? If you can mimic it so well, this behavior, this thought, this song, so to speak, have you not convinced yourself at this point that it actually is yours? How would you describe your identity? How would you express it in song? Do you have a personal anthem? From the Los Angeles Times, I pulled an article on one man's encounter with the mockingbird, and this material prompted much contemplation. I'm going to read uh, parts of the article verbatim. I was trained as a biologist, and while no longer doing official research, I'm not above a speculation or two, or even a simple, easy-to-do experiment. The results and the conclusions can be provocative and can also run counter to folklore. Mockingbirds, for instance, are not singing out of joy or pleasure, as is commonly believed. Much of the time, they sing out of desperation. The evidence clearly suggested the kind of life a mockingbird lives. Like most songbirds, they have evolved a system of parceling up the land, which acts as a kind of natural farm, with the males defending the boundaries. They rarely fight physically, though, presumably because injury is too costly at a time when a bird needs all its strength just to break even in the energy economics of life. But there is usually no need to fight, because the vigor and skill of your song gives a good idea of the vigor and skill of your body. The odds are that Jack, this biologist named the bird Jack, was locked in musical combat for his family's survival, and singing was the measure of his substance and grit. If he got sick or injured or old, that would also come out in his song. He continues, I had been assuming that mockingbirds sang to win and defend their territories just during the mating and rearing season, like most songbirds. But by fall, the chicks had long ago left the nests, and the males were still holding on to their territories, even though they had stopped singing at night, probably, <laughs> probably because there was not so much to be lost. To have thought that mockingbirds sing for the joy of singing was pure romanticism. The writings of Thoreau came to mind with the idea that nature is idyllic and tranquil, and that the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. If men and women lead lives of quiet desperation, what sort were birds supposed to lead? So my interpretation is this. Whether it's for survival or joy, one must sing. You must learn your song and then you must sing it. If you feel dead inside, sing. If you feel alive, sing then too. Use your voice, make sounds, lots of different sounds like the mockingbird, ugly sounds, beautiful sounds, embarrassing sounds, proud sounds. Sing your heart out literally right out of your body. 
Trauma is not really psychological, it's physiological. There has to be physiological discharge or else trauma gets stuck and stored in the body. If it doesn't surface through the felt sense, it lies dormant in our nervous systems, sometimes for life. This leads to dissociation, shutdown, numbness, depression, shame, and other issues that leave us in frozen states of being, paralyzed and checked out of life and living. The voice is a strong, multifaceted, energetic, resonant, and vibrational rhythmic presence that, when used with awareness, has tremendous healing properties. Singing a song with any repetition, patterns, recurring beats, they all have this, helps to move from a dysregulated nervous system to regulation. Relationships plus rhythm heals a nervous system. Simply stated, that's what voice lessons are with the right, <laughs> with the right technician. Vocal warm-ups are rhythmically and melodically structured repeated patterns. This is almost like a self-induced hypnosis. Already on your way to calm by activating the vagus nerve. I just learned about primal scream therapy, which apparently John Lennon used um, during the recording of one of his albums. It's used to re-experience childhood pain felt rather than conceptual memories in an attempt to resolve the pain through complete processing and integration becoming real. An intended objective of the therapy is to lessen or eliminate the hold early trauma exerts on adult behavior. I'm fascinated. I'm a huge fan of guided inner child work already, which essentially accomplishes the same things it seems. So I'm going to have to really do my research on primal scream therapy later. More on that later. Once a musical note leaves an instrument or vocal tract, its timbre and pitch produce minute fluctuations in air pressure around the listener, triggering electrophysiological impulses in the cochlea, that's the spiral cavity of the inner ear, which then travel through the brainstem and midbrain en route to specialized subregions of the auditory cortex, where they are imbued with emotional interpretation and memory by higher cognitive processes in the orbitofrontal region of the prefrontal cortex. Oh my God. It is in this way that objective physical changes in an an acoustic signal induce psychological effects as subjective and abstract feelings, turning acoustic features into psychoacoustic phenomena. Woo, did you get all that? Simple subtext, music affects the brain and body. If the voice does not feel like, oh, hey bud. If the voice does not feel like a safe place to start, we investigate and discover the other parts of the body that do. Then eventually, over time, return to the voice via the other systems that have been fully integrated. Whether it's the legs, the chest, the eyes, hands, feet, belly, whatever. If you're working with me or with someone else, there has to be generous attunement and unconditional positive regard from your instructor. So first and foremost, you are being held in a container of safety. The art of caregiving in vocal instruction and therapeutic processes boils down to being able to read a room. Oh, should we eavesdrop? (laughs) 
I have loads of empathy and have worked diligently over the years to move from codependent to empath, which is now serving me beautifully in my private professional work. It's the practitioner's job to use conscious observation, assessing where a person is in their process, and to not push their agenda onto the client. We're not there to prove ourselves or convince anyone of anything. We're there to hold space. While you explore, while you investigate, while you develop sensory awareness through singing, oscillating in pendulation, back and forth between uncomfortable but pleasant situations and sensations. Excuse me, that would be uncomfortable and pleasant situations. That's the oscillation. Um, this is called reprocessing and desensitization. And it's another key component in healing trauma and regulating the nervous system. The nervous system asks the question, am I seen? These, this is more than one question. <laughs> am I seen? Am I heard? Am I valued? The best therapy, in my opinion, is human love. We all need to be heard, seen, and valued. Chronic trauma depletes physical, mental, and emotional health, and navigating unresolved grief can feel overwhelming, especially if you don't know where to begin. There is a science of connection that begins with self and continues to self-regulation. But then we need co-regulation, safe places to connect with others. This is why working on your voice in a healthy shared space can offer tremendous healing, as I said earlier. So I'm not going to touch, why well, I am going to touch on the polyvagal nervous system since it's part of the title of this uh, episode, but I'm not going to... I'm not going to do a full dive, just going to um, quick highlight. So what is the polyvagal nervous system? It's an um, autonomic nervous system, which starts developing in our mother's womb, by the way. And it's comprised of three neural circuits of the vagus nerve. And they are from the bottom up. We have dorsal. When this shuts down, it moves us into numbness, immobility, and dissociation. The sympathetic, which engages the fight-or-flight response, can leave us in agitation, frantic mode, hyperarousal, etc. And then we have the ventral vagal nerve functioning, which keeps us happy, safe, and socially engaged. That's optimal, obviously. So, in closing, I remind you, singing is a somatic event, and somatic work completes traumatic healing. Did you know how we move in our body is 55% of how we communicate? Inflection and tone of the voice represents 33% of our communicative skills. And words, actually using words to relate, is only 7% of communication. Start communicating with yourself somatically. Sing, dance, walk, swing, paint, create, do yoga hike, swim, fall in love with life again, take the risks of living, and come home to yourself. This was episode 10 of the Song Heart Connection podcast. Thank you guys for listening. <laughs>